What's up, Body C? Everybody doing okay? Don't let the two waters here distract you. That's not a reflection of how long I'm going to go today, okay? One of the great things about being a lay pastor and being able to preach not on a weekly basis is that I get to make a mess and somebody else gets to clean it up. One of the things that I've learned uh, so far in our, in our uh, study of Genesis 1 through 11 is that creation began at a baseball game. We've already heard how Eve stole first in the beginning and Adam stole second. And now Cain strikes out Abel. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll find out that the giants and the angels get rained out. <laughs> Somebody else got to clean it up. It's not my job. <laughs> I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 4 and follow along. We have a lot of work to do this morning. This is a, a, a rich chapter that is chock full of truth. And so I hope that we can uh, spend our time uh, diving into all of it. But as, as you turn to, in your Bibles or on your, on your tablet to uh, chapter 4, let me, let me uh, just offer a brief prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, we love you. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us your word. As your church now opens the Bible, I pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school, or if you are in any way familiar with the Bible, then I expect that much of Genesis 1 through 11 is familiar to you. We've heard about the creation account in the Garden of Eden. Right, you probably know about Adam and Eve and how they ate the apple, which wasn't actually an apple, okay? Because if there's any fruit that's going to be involved in the downfall of humanity, it's a nasty tomato. And now we've come to Cain and Abel. These are familiar stories, and I think that if we're not careful, it can be easy to just rely on the Sunday school version and ignore the need to understand how they fit in the whole narrative of the Bible. So if we read Genesis chapter 4, and the only thing that we learn is to not be jealous, like that's good, but we haven't quite gone far enough. So my prayer this morning is that we can grasp just exactly what Cain and Abel have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may be here, and this may be the first time that you've ever read or studied Genesis 1 through 11. And praise God for you. In fact, what I want to I, I do is I want to put all of us on that level. So imagine if this were the first time that you were reading the Bible. And you started in Genesis 1, and now we've come to Genesis 4. I think there are two obvious questions that we would be asking. The first is, what is life outside of the Garden of Eden going to be like? Because at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the immediate presence of God. When they disobeyed God, they traded create, uh, creation for the Creator, and everything that God made that was once good is now broken. And now that everything has been broken by sin, the question is, will God inter still interact with people? Will people long to be with God again, or will they forget Him? What is life outside of the Garden of Eden going to be like? And the second question comes directly from Genesis 3.15. Which son of Eve will be the rescuer? We heard last week that God promised to put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians and Bible scholars have called this the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, which I might add was preached to the serpent. As though to say, you might have gotten Adam and Eve, but your days are numbered. And so in many ways, the rest of the Bible is telling the story of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. So when we get to Genesis chapter 4, the overarching message, I think, is that God begins to reveal His plan of redemption even in the midst of the corruption of humanity that was caused by the fall. God begins to reveal His plan of redemption even in the midst of the first murder in history. This is a plan that will take thousands of years to execute, and there is much to learn about God and about ourselves before it all comes to pass. So the fourth chapter of Genesis, then, is just the beginning of the journey. And it's a chapter that's filled with firsts. We find the first children, the first vocations, the first offerings to God, the first murder, the first tattoo, the first bigamist, and then the first time that people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's a lot that we have to cover. But I'm going to try to orient our time this morning around three emerging themes as the plan of God begins to unfold. The first theme is the worship of God and the danger of sin. And this is where we kind of get to look at the details of Cain and Abel's sacrifices and the aftermath of, 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 of what goes on there. The second theme is the way of Cain and the blood of Abel. And there we kind of get to zoom out a little bit and see what does the rest of the Bible have to say about Cain and Abel. And then in the third theme, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, we get to peel back the curtain. And we get to see that there may be more happening in Genesis 4 than actually meets the eye. So let's look at the first, the worship of God and the danger of sin. The first command that Adam and Eve actually obey is to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, hold up. Adam and Eve just introduced sin into the world. They just got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I wonder if Eve looked at Adam and was like, man, we really messed up. Did you hear what God said? Did you hear those curses that God said because of what we did? Adam, what are we supposed to do now? Adam's like, I mean, (laughs) what else are we going to do, you know? So Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and gave birth. And then she gave birth again. Seemed like they got over that shame they felt in Genesis 3 pretty quick. So Cain and Abel are born. There seems to be some expectation or hope with Cain that he might be the immediate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Cain is born, and Eve declares, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is what God was talking about. But then she also bore his brother Abel. And there's no exclamation of joy over the second child. She just bore Abel. Abel's name means breath or vapor. Maybe because he was out of breath. I don't know. 
but his name signifies the brevity of his life. He was the first person to physically die. And that was at the hands of someone who should have cared for him. So these are the first two children in the world. And now that Adam and Eve have been fruitful and multiplied, the first family begins to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Because that's what you do when you have kids. You put them to work. they got to have something to do. So Cain becomes a farmer, and Abel becomes a shepherd. And in the course of time, we read in verse 3, Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. And this teaches us about worship. The first thing that it shows us is that people begin to relate to God through sacrifice. We've already seen, just six or seven verses ago, that God sacrifices an animal to provide skin coverings for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. And now, their sons follow suit. They bring sacrifices to God. And this becomes the Old Testament pattern, right? As sacrifice, especially blood sacrifice, becomes the centerpiece of the worship of the people of Israel. And then the rest of the New Testament makes clear that the whole sacrificial system was meant to point us to Christ, who fulfilled the whole thing, at once and for all, by his sacrificial death on the cross. So after the fall, people begin to relate to God through sacrifice, and so it is with us today. We still relate to God through sacrifice, but it's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to have a relationship with God, you must come to Jesus. There's a couple of other important lessons that we learn from the offerings that Cain and Abel bring. And, and the lessons, they kind of set up this distinction right, between righteous Abel and wicked Cain. The first lesson, and probably the most obvious, is that their work informed their worship. Their vocation provided the means by which they had anything to offer. So already in the Bible, we see this interplay between work and worship, right? That we ought not separate our work in the world and our worship of God. It's good for us to do what Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So friends, work hard and work happy. You are serving the Lord Christ, and your reward for that is better than a paycheck. One theologian says, your vocation is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Think about that when your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning. And let's bring some gospel gladness to a world in need. The second lesson that we learn is that the, uh, the wor- that worship that God accepts must be offered in faith. Right? Their offerings were not equal in God's eyes. We're told that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain's. And there's a lot that we could say about that. There's a lot that's been said about that. Why would God regard Abel and not Cain? Maybe he's just elevating the younger brother over the, other bro- the elder brother, which sounds familiar. We're told that Cain offered the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. He brought the best. So maybe God had j- just had regard for the better offering. Maybe God likes shepherds more than farmers. I'm 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 making the mess. I don't have to clean it up, okay? (laughs) Genesis doesn't tell us why God had regard for one and not the other. But thankfully, 
Hebrews interprets Genesis for us. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which many of us call the Hall of Faith, in the fourth verse, the writer says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. God accepted Abel's offering because it was offered in faith. And then in the sixth verse of Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So know this, we do not worship God in order to appease him or to win his favor. If you came into this room this morning to worship God, thinking that you could get points with him, that is an anti-gospel. The gospel is God's wrath has been appeased and we have his favor because Jesus made a sacrifice on our behalf that God regarded. And we know that God had regard for his sacrifice because he raised him from the dead. Therefore, we worship. You see, if we, if we flip the order, we lose the gospel. How can we keep our worship rooted in faith? I love this quote from a guy named William Temple who defines worship in such a way that I think it helps us understand how, how we continue to worship in faith. He says, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God, and all of this gathered up in that emotion which most cleanses us from selfishness because it is the most selfless of all emotions, adoration. Worship that is rooted in faith is offered in adoration of God. Abel teaches us about acceptable worship. And then Cain teaches us about the danger of sin. We read that Cain, after God had regard for Abel but not Cain, Cain was very angry and his face fell. The wickedness of his heart is displayed on his face. And God warns him of the destructive nature of sin. And as he's warning him, he calls Cain to do three things. He calls him to, he calls him to self-reflection. He calls him to repentance. And then he calls him to beware the danger of unrepentance. God calls Cain to self-reflection. He says, why are you angry? Now, so far in the Bible, I love that this has been one of the primary ways that God responds to sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? They ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, they felt ashamed, and so they hid from God. And God comes walking into the garden, and he says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now he responds to Cain, Why are you angry? These questions are gifts. It's like an x-ray. Something is broken and we need to know what's going on behind the surface. They almost act as a spiritual AED to shock us back into reality because God wants us to come to our senses about our sin. He wants us to recognize the truth about who we are and what we're doing. Not so that we'll feel bad about ourselves. So that we will run to God and confess our sins and trust Him for forgiveness. Self-reflection is a gift as long as it doesn't lead us to despair, but it leads us to come to Jesus. That's why Scottish Pastor Robert Murray McShane would say, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. God responds to these sins with questions. And now I know, now, as a side note, many of us 
are involved in the ministry of counseling. We're meeting with one another to disciple one another. And if you're like me, sometimes you meet with someone for counseling and they bear their soul to you and you think, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't, have, I don't know what to do with that. Let me give you a tool. Oftentimes, a well-placed question can prick the heart better than a thousand nuggets of wisdom. If you don't know what to say, ask somebody, we struggle with anger? Why do you think that is? Let's look at the Bible and explore why it is we get angry, right? And so then God calls Cain to self-reflection, and he calls Cain to repentance. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Apparently, there was still time for Cain to change his attitude. And I think it's significant that the first opportunity for repentance in the Bible is given in response to anger. Anger can have disastrous consequences, but usually not immediately. Anger builds. And if we don't deal with it, anger grows, and it festers like a sore in our soul. That's why Paul told us in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Think of it. If the serpent could tempt Adam and Eve with a piece of fruit, imagine what he can do with your anger. God calls Cain to repentance. And then he calls Cain to beware the danger of unrepentance. He says, if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God describes sin as a predator lying in wait, which sounds like 1 Peter 5 8. Your, devil, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, do you recognize the danger of sin like this? Sin will destroy you. It is not fun. Sin is not something to be entertained. It is not something to be dismissed. Sin is dangerous. It leads only to death. And the call to rule over sin is a call to do battle with the beast. How is it that we can rule over sin? Let me give you a few ways. The first way is we kill it, we kill the beast. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And Paul tells us in Romans that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're a genuine follower of Christ in this room, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit indwells within you. That doesn't make killing our sin easy. But guess what? It absolutely makes it possible. You may feel hopeless in your battle with the beast, but I want you to know that the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And who wants you to be sanctified more, you or God? So it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Kill your sin by the power of the spirit. Another way that we rule over our sin is by fleeing from it. Paul tells Timothy to flee from the love of money and other things. And he tells the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. So like, if you know that sin is crouching at the door, don't go near the door. 
Don't put yourself in a position to be overcome by temptation. We have to do what Joseph did when he was accosted by Potiphar's wife. Run away. Get out of there. Run, Forrest, run. Don't mess around with them. Flee. We also bring our sin to Jesus. If you want to rule over your sin, bring it to the king who already dealt with it. We have a savior who put sin on his shoulders and he suplexed it to the grave. And the cross has already outed every single one of us as sinners, so you don't have to worry how Jesus is going to respond when you come to him and say, Lord, I have sinned, and this is how. Jesus isn't going to be like, what? You did what? He already knows. He's going to say, yeah, I know. I died on the cross for that. So we can do what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to rule over your sin, bring it to the king who already dealt with it. God warns Cain of the danger of unrepentance. And if this is the first time that we're reading the Bible, then we have to wonder, will Cain respond to God's warning with repentance or with further rebellion? And we get to look at the way of Cain and the blood of Abel in verses 8 to 16. God told Cain to rule over his sin, but unfortunately he wasn't able. You knew it was coming. Don't boo, you knew it was coming. I bet when Adam and Eve found out Abel was dead, they raised Cain. In the context of the whole Bible, the distinction between wicked Cain and righteous Abel goes beyond the occasion of their offerings. Cain's attitude, his murderous behavior, becomes a template for those who walk in wickedness. If you go to the 11th verse of Jude, it speaks of those who walk in the way of Cain. That is, those who give full, unbridled expression to their sin. That's what walking in the way of Cain is. And in 1 John 3, 12, we're told that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain's attitude and his behavior becomes a template for all of those who give full expression to their sin. But the temporary and the unjust nature of Abel's life becomes a kind of framework for all of life after the fall. If you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, in verse 2, the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out at the world and he sees how everything is temporary and it's fleeting. And he says, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. The word that we translate as vanity is actually Abel's name. So the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out at the world and he says, everything is Abel. As it was for Abel, so it is for us. Man is like a breath, and his days are like a passing shadow. Like it or not, we are subject to the suffering and the sorrow of a world that is broken by sin. And too often, that comes at the hands of those who should care for us. So Abel, and particularly Abel's blood, 
represents a need for justice, and it leads us to Jesus. We look at the way of Cain, right? The consequence of Cain's anger and jealousy is murder. Just as Adam and Eve failed to rule over the serpent, Cain failed to rule over his sin. And with complete disregard for the Imago Dei, he takes his little brother out into the field and he kills him. Maybe you've heard the saying, sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will cost you more than you ever expected to pay, and it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. That basically sums up the way of Cain. The way of Cain is a way that leads to hell. Cain murders his brother, and God comes to him and he says, Cain, where is Abel your brother? There's that question again. But Cain doesn't do the self-reflection that God wants him to do, right? He simply just lies through his teeth, and he rejects any guilt. Cain, where's your brother? Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's not my problem, right? Now, at my house, when my kids get sassy, they get sassy juice, which is a medicine cup with lemon juice that they just got to down it. And may or may not be cut with water, depending on the severity of the sassiness, okay? Cain clearly needs some uncut sassy juice because that's no way to speak to the God who just created your daddy from dust and then fashioned your mother from your daddy's rib. I'm not talking to the God like that. One commentator says, Cain's question is essentially, am I the shepherd's shepherd? He's saying, come on, God, why are you asking me this? I thought you wanted nothing to do with me. Clearly you loved Abel. It was your job to look after him. I thought he had your attention. So just like his mother and his father, Cain puts the blame back on God. And Cain gets a lot worse than sassy juice. In verses 10 to 14, we see that Cain is cursed from the ground and cast away from God's presence. The ground that swallowed Abel's blood will no longer produce vegetation for Cain. So every time farmer Cain, every time, one of, every time he has a crop that fails, he has to remember his brother that he killed. And he's cast away from the presence of God. He is a fugitive and a wanderer. He's an outlaw without a home. Now you might notice, if you fast forward to verse 17, Cain actually doesn't wander very long. He builds a city. It seems like his vocation changes from farmer to builder. And so it seems that the consequences of his sin change the trajectory of his entire life. But Cain is cursed and he's cast away. And I think it's a good time for us now to remember that because of the fall, we all have the way of Cain embedded within us. This is why 1 John gives us the warning to not be like Cain. If you think about what Jesus said on the sermon of the, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, You've heard it said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he goes on, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brothers and sisters, the reality is every angry word would become murder if it could. Every lustful glance would become adultery if it could. 
And so because of sin, we are also under a curse and cast away from God. Like Cain, our punishment is greater than we can bear. Cain's theology seems to be better than it has a right to be. God, Cain responds to his consequences in fear. Right? And irony of all ironies, he says, but God, I can't wander around the earth. What if somebody kills me? You should have thought of that before you went and murdered your brother. But God doesn't respond like that to Cain, does he? God responds to Cain's fear with mercy. The consequences of his sin are not removed, but God marks Cain in order to protect him from further bloodshed. The first tattoo in the Bible. We don't know what the mark of Cain is. It's been misinterpreted and misapplied in a number of ways, especially in the last couple hundred years in American Christianity. We don't know what the mark of Cain was, but apparently it was clear to everyone else that Cain had been, was being protected by God, and so they wouldn't mess with him. I like to think maybe God gave him a little teardrop right here. I don't know. <laughs> Making a mess. Somebody can deal with it later. God simply reserves vengeance for himself. And yet we still have a problem. Abel is still dead. The blood of an innocent man has been shed and it is fresh on the ground. And so now, is this what life is going to be like after the fall? Will God allow such injustice? And for that, we need to go back and revisit the, the, uh, verse 10 and look at the blood of Abel. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Interestingly enough, the Bible places far more significance on Abel's death than it does on his life. If you go to Luke chapter 11, verse 51, as Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees, and he says that the, all of the righteous bloodshed on earth will fall upon them, that they are guilty of it all, he includes, Jesus includes Abel as the first among the prophets whose blood was shed. He says, from the righteous blood of Abel, he's the first among the prophets. But Genesis 4 never records a single word that Abel ever said. Hebrews 11.4 says, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's name means breath, and his life was little more than a whisper. But his shed blood echoes throughout the narrative of redemption. Hebrews 12, 24 declares that Christians have come to Jesus, the, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is Abel's blood saying? And how does Jesus' blood speak a better word? Abel's blood brings a curse on Cain. But Jesus' blood lifts the curse off of us. Abel's blood causes Cain to be separated from God, but Jesus' blood brings us back to God. Abel's blood cries out for justice to be served, but Jesus' blood satisfies God's wrath. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that you and I, who quite honestly are more like Cain than we are like Abel, might be rescued from the curse of sin and brought back home to God. That's what Jesus accomplished when he shed his blood on the cross. 
Both men were killed because of the influence of the evil one. But as Abel's blood cries vanity, Jesus' blood cries victory. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The third thing that we get to unpack is the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And this is where we kind of zoom out. And we recognize there may be more here than meets the eye. Because as the, whole, the whole time, as we've been talking about Cain and Abel, something has been lurking in the darkness. One commentator says, Behind the crouching sin in this passage is a hidden dragon. And the serpent hasn't raised his ugly head in Genesis chapter 4, but he has been manipulating and conniving his way to see that no son of Eve will ever fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. The conflict between the serpent and the woman and between their offspring has already begun. Like Eve, we might have expected that Cain would be the rescuer, but after God had regard for Abel, Cain's actions betrayed him as an offspring of the serpent. We could well appropriate Jesus' words in John chapter 8 and verse 44 to Cain. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Cain proves himself to be an offspring of the serpent. And now Eve is left with one dead son and another who is cursed, cast away, and a killer who has aligned himself with the serpent's schemes. And it's not as though Cain would have a son who might fulfill this promise. If we look at verses 17 to 24, right, that only gives us deeper depravity. Five generations pass with no hint of defeat for the serpent and no hope for humanity. And then we're introduced to Lamech, the not-so-great-great-great-grandson of Cain. He is the first in the Bible mentioned to have two wives, which is a departure from God's design in Genesis 1.24. And he was a murderer like Cain. And worst of all, he wrote a poem about it for his two wives. Not worst of all. The murder was the worst of all. <laughs> Lamech's response to being struck by a young man was out of proportion and displayed his over-the-top vengefulness. And then he multiplies the vengeance that God promised for Cain, and he takes it upon himself. He says, Cain had God's protection, and I'm safer than Cain. So it seems as though the serpent has won that all of humanity has rejected God and his ways. There are no other sons of Eve. But the night is darkest just before the dawn. And into the fray, from the top rope, comes the birth of another child, the offspring of the woman. In verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to another son, Seth, who was appointed to replace righteous Abel because the offspring of the serpent killed him. There is hope of rescue yet. Notice that Seth speaks not a word in the storyline of Scripture, just like his older brother Abel. All he does is have another son, Enosh. And as the hope of a rescuer is rekindled, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. 
Perhaps they felt that the prospect of rescue was imminent with the birth of Seth and Enosh, or perhaps they felt that it was taking too long. Either way, the promise of God compels people to pray. There's a lesson in there for us. Rest assured, friends, God will not be mocked. His promises will absolutely come to pass. From Enosh would come Noah, and from Noah would eventually come Abraham, and from Abraham would come David, and from David would come Jesus, the Christ. When God brought Seth into the world, he provided a way to bring Jesus, the Christ, into the world. And God himself becomes the fulfillment of his own promise by becoming the offspring of the woman. Now, interestingly enough, again, nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus directly said to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. So is it right to say then that he is the promised one? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Because in Romans 16.20, it declares to the church of Jesus Christ that the God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The church, which is the body of Christ, has been bruising the serpent's head for 2,000 years. He may get a little nip in here and there, but his days are numbered. And very soon he will find himself in a lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And he will never accuse or abuse the saints again. And that's good news. But until that time, we have the offspring of the woman residing in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. The Bible says that he became like us, and he is not ashamed to call us brother. Our own family member sits at the right hand of God and prays for us. Praise the Lord. And he is coming back for his church. And until that time, when we get to see him face to face, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come offspring of the woman and make all things right. Right all wrongs. We look forward to that day. Let's pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And we thank you for your word. Thank you how it instructs us and how it sanctifies us. Lord, I pray that as a result of our time together this morning, you would sanctify your church. I pray that you would encourage your church. And I pray that you would help us to worship you even more and even better than we do now. Lord, would you grant us the clarity to see our sin? Help us to, to do the work of self-reflection and to repent. Help us to beware the danger of unrepentance. And most of all, help us to worship Christ. For that is our highest good and your greatest glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.